0: As you know, we took a break from the book of Matthew, and as was mentioned, we're going to be jumping back into Matthew chapter 22. The title of this sermon is The Resurrection and the Greatest Commandment. If you've been with us for some time, you may remember that we left off in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. When the Pharisees set out to entrap Jesus in his words by asking him this question in verse 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? This was the first vignette or story of three vignettes found in Matthew chapter 22 in which the religious leaders try and trap Jesus with a series of questions. Their ultimate motive and goal is to have Jesus killed. Since the religious leaders at that time were threatened by his popularity and the influence that Jesus was gaining with the people. With this in mind, today we'll be looking at the next two vignettes found in Matthew 22. The first vignette is in verses 23 through 33 on marriage and the resurrection. The second vignette is found in verses 34 through 40 on the greatest commandment. Let's read now our first vignette in Matthew 22, starting in verse 23, and it'll be up there on the screen, that says, "...that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Him with a question." Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there was seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are an heir, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they are astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Father God in heaven, we just humble ourselves. We quiet ourselves before your holy word this morning. We as God's people not only want to hear what the spirit of the living God says to us, but more importantly, as the spirit of God speaks, we as your people want to respond to the word of God. We want to be a people who respond joyfully to the Word of God as we hear this morning. And I ask this morning and confess before my brothers and sisters that I need Your help. I recognize as You said, Jesus, apart from You, I can do nothing. So God, give me the grace to speak forth these words, Your very words, that they would give You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in this first vignette, we need to keep in mind that it's just later in the day after Jesus put to silence the disciples of the Pharisees that now some Sadducees attempted to succeed where the others had failed. The antagonists now move from a question about politics back in verse 17 to a question about Scripture, theology, theology. Here in verse 23, as it says, That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. But first, we need a little background information. Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the other, religious, were the other leading religious party in Israel of that day. The Sadducees and Pharisees were generally speaking the religious le- leaders of Israel during the time of Jesus. And it was basically a two-system party in Israel even as it is in America today. Just as we have the Democrats and the Republicans, they had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they made some they made up something called the the Sanhedrin which were 70 ruling elders. The Sanhedrin was a ruling body of elders in Israel that governed, oversaw, and directed the religious and the social life of Israel. So the Pharisees, in a sense, have tapped out after Jesus sets them straight about taxes. And now the Sadducees step in and they have this question about life after death, about the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. Although they claimed to believe in Scripture, their interpretations were so spiritualized that all significant meaning was lost. They were thoroughly liberal and materialistic, not believing in angels, the resurrection of the dead, the afterlife, or anything else supernatural. When it came to the resurrection of the the dead... They had this interesting theological position. They did not believe in life after death, as I mentioned. They believed that this life was all that there was. They had a sincere desire in this lifetime to glorify God, but did not believe in the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. This is why they asked this question concerning Scripture to trap Jesus in verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. And then they ask, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? The Sadducees go on to propose a far-fetched scenario about the seven brothers in verse 25. With all seven brothers and eventually everyone, including the woman, Dying. So it's not difficult to imagine the glint in their eyes and the smirks on their faces, on the faces of the Sadducees, as they looked at Jesus and proposed their supposedly unanswerable question here in verse 28. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So basically, they're saying, if all eight would appear in the resurrection exactly in the condition and the circumstances in which they had died, as the Pharisees and presumably Jesus mentioned, how could their marriage relationships possibly be reconciled? Good question. That dilemma proved the idea of the resurrection to be clearly absurd, as now, as Jesus now would be forced to admit, by His silence, if not by His words. Yet we see in verses 29-32 through how Jesus responds to the Sadducees' proposed question. Starting in verse 29, again, Jesus said to them, You are an heir, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees probably expected Jesus to say nothing and walk away in humiliation and disgrace. But instead, Jesus answered without hesitation and immediately put them on the defensive, saying to them, You are an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus said pointedly, You are dead wrong, in effect, and have no idea what you are talking about. Jesus had harsh words for the religious leaders of that time. And then Jesus next presents the two reasons why the Sadducees were in error. They erred in not understanding the Scriptures and in not understanding the power of God. Although they knew the Scriptures, they did not know God or His power. Although they knew the Scriptures, as the religious leaders of that day knew the scriptures, they did not know God. That's why Jesus said, you are like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. A heavy rebuke. Nothing could have cut them to the quick worse than to be accused of not understanding these two areas in which the proud Sadducees consider themselves most authoritative. Jesus then explains in reverse order how they misunderstood God's word and God's power. First, the Sadducees misunderstood God's power, as Jesus said in verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So in exposing the Sadducees' false notion, About the resurrection, Jesus also exposed their false notion about angels whose existence those religious leaders denied. In the heavenly state, he declared men and women neither marry nor will be given in marriage. So Jesus, in essence, says here in verse 30 in that life, in the afterlife, in the resurrection, in heaven, we will not be married. Now that might be good news to you. Or that might be bad news to you, depending on your spouse. (laughs) But Jesus makes clear and says there won't be marriage in heaven because the purpose for marriage will be fully and finally fulfilled. The first purpose for marriage was companionship. God said in the book of Genesis about man, it is not good for man to be alone. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. And so he made woman. Can someone say, thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. And so he brought the two together and made them one for companionship and for relationship. Although God created marriage for companionship and for relationship, all this will be fulfilled fully in our relationship with Christ. Companionship and relationship will no longer be an issue. All of our relational needs will be fully met in the glory of and beauty of Christ, which I say, Amen. Now secondly, we'll look at how the Sadducees misunderstood God's Word as said in verse 31 through 32. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Knowing that the Sadducees would not be convinced regarding the resurrection from any part of Scripture but the Pentateuch, Jesus reminded them of a statement spoken by God that is recorded numerous of times in the book of Exodus as when God spoke to Moses when he appeared to him in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and said again, "'I am the God of Abraham.'" and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. which What Jesus wants to draw our attention to is the fact when God said that, He spoke it in the present tense. Jesus is carefully teasing out truth from Scripture here. God said in the present tense. God didn't say, Ah, oh, Moses, do you want to know who I am? I was the God of Abraham, but then he died. I was the God of Isaac, but he's dead. I was the God of Jacob, but now they are all dead. So now I will be your God. Jesus quotes God saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is basically saying, these are the righteous, resurrect, resurrected of my love or in God's love. Then Jesus continues and says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So the present tense is very important. And he says to them, This is what God said to you. And he wants them to hear it for themselves that God was identifying himself to Moses in the burning bush as the God of the living. So again, Jesus destroys their whole argument right here. And probably that was their stock argument that they gave to people when they were teaching why there was no resurrection from the dead. So for the second time in this chapter, Jesus does not get trapped by their questioning but instead makes them look foolish to their own demise. So what's the takeaway from this first vignette? There's two things, two takeaways that I hope we get this morning. I hope that we receive. First, when it comes to the resurrection. Surely God's purposes for His children in the resurrection is not only that eternal life will replace death, and righteousness replace sin, and health replace sickness, and joy replace sorrow, and pleasures replace pain, but also that the unimaginable, unending, ever-increasing ecstasies replace the best of our most intense pleasures of this world. I want to say that again because it's so important that he says, in essence, but also that unimaginable, unending, ever increasing ecstasies replace the best of our most intense pleasures in this world. In other words, the age to come is not only an improvement over the worst of this world, but over the best of this world. Secondly, If the age to come is not only an, an improvement over the worst of this world, but over the best of this world, then the end of marriage is actually spectacularly, really, really, really good news. It's good news. Do you guys see this? Marriage in this age, at its very best, at its very best, offers some of life's most intense pleasures and sweetest intimacies. If you've ever tasted these, or you've ever dreamed of tasting them, then you can feel the astonishing force of the promise that marriage will be no more. Because it was too weak to carry God's best eternal pleasures. The more you feel like you'd miss it, the more we should rejoice that it will be replaced. If if you have just an intimate, sweet marriage or you have experienced that and you start thinking, gosh, I'm going to really miss marriage. I'm really going to miss my spouse. You can actually rejoice that you will miss your spouse or miss marriage. Because with every taste and every dream, we need to remember this. This is only a foretaste, only a prelude, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love Him. For all of us, married or not, this is a radical promise right here in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Think about it. It's telling us what we are going to experience in the life to come in heaven. Again, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of a man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be glorious. We are going to be in the presence and glory and beauty in majesty of Jesus. We are going to be in awe and wonderment. It's going to be glorious. It is going to be amazing. I mean, I hope you guys see it. I mean, I really hope you see it. So now, transitioning into the next vignette, the tag team continues from the Sadducees, now back to the Pharisees to try again To trap Jesus. And what's totally classic to me is they still haven't learned yet. So the antagonists now move from a question about politics, back in verse 17, to a question about scripture, theology, in verse 23, and now to a question about morality, starting in verse 34. Let's read now our second vignette in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, which will be on the screen again. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in response to the third in a series of three questions posed by his adversaries for the purpose, again, For the purpose of discrediting Jesus and entrapping him, Jesus declared that agape love is the supreme divine requirement for men. Both in regard to himself and and in regard to other men. When Jesus answered the absurd question about the seven brothers showing that even Moses taught about the resurrection... It says in verse 34 that Jesus had silenced. He had silenced the Sadducees. The Greek verb literally means to muzzle, to forcefully restrict the opening of the mouth. The Sadducees were rendered utterly speechless. Now that would have been something to see, just them utterly speechless, like a muzzle over their mouths. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus put the Sadducees to silence, they decided on a new strategy with one of their own, as it says, an expert in the law to test him. This expert in the law, which really was a lawyer at that time, was probably the most learned and astute expert on scriptural and rabbinical laws at that time or in their ranks. And if anyone would be a match for Jesus, they thought, This would be the man. Let's get a lawyer to question Jesus about the rabbinical law. And here is the question that he asked in verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So this expert in the law enters into the scene and he's looking to trap Jesus by either diminishing his popularity with the people and or endangering him with Roman authorities by asking him this question about morality. In asking which commandment is the greatest, the lawyer was asking, "What was the greatest commandment of Moses?" Although the scribes and the Pharisees considered the whole Old Testament to be authoritative, they nevertheless considered Moses to be the supreme human figure in Scripture. And the reason that question even existed is because the Jewish rabbis for hundreds of years had this practice as when they taught the people, they would divide the Mosaic Law actually into two categories. The light commands... And the heavy commands. The heavy ones being absolutely binding. And the light ones being less binding. And judging by the lawyer's single and extremely simple question. They assumed that his naming the one great commandment in the law would be sufficiently unorthodox. And that would would condemn him. So when the lawyer asked Jesus in verse 36, Teacher... Which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I am declaring to you, Jesus was therefore saying, that the great commandment is the commandment of Moses, that all of you recite every day, and that many of you bind on your arms and foreheads every day. And then it's also important to notice in verse 38, Jesus adds his own words to put the commandment actually even higher than the question required. The question was, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. So when Jesus answers that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, love God with all your heart means finding God a satisfaction so profound that it fills up all of your heart. Love God with all your soul means finding God a meaning so rich and so deep that it fills up all the aching corners of your soul. Love God with all your mind means finding God the riches of knowledge and insight and wisdom that guide and satisfy all that the human mind was meant to be. That's what it means to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. So after stating the first and the greatest commandment, Jesus did the Pharisees one better and added the second as well. He adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not surprisingly, the second greatest commandment involves the virtue of the first, namely love. The command for genuine love of God, Jesus declared, is next followed in importance by the command for a love for your neighbor that is of the same order as the love you already have for yourself. So God is saying, first and foremost, love God and love people as you love yourself. Genuine love for one's neighbor is of the same kind as genuine love for God. It is by choice purposeful intentional and active not merely sentimental and emotional and it's measured jesus said this is important it's measured by your love for yourself when jesus says love your neighbor as yourself jesus was not commanding jesus was not commanding a person to love himself but assumed he already does love himself. Jesus says, in effect, I start with your inborn, deep, defining human human trait, your love for yourself. This is a given. I don't command it. I assume it. All of you have a powerful instinct for self-preservation and self-fulfillment. You all want to be happy. You all want to live and to live with satisfaction. You want food for yourself. You want clothes for yourself. You want a place to live for yourself. You want protection from violence against yourself. You want meaningful or pleasant activity to fill all your days. You want some friends to like you. And spend some time with you. You want your life to count in some way. All this is self-love. Self-love is the the deep longing to diminish pain and to increase happiness. That's what Jesus starts with when he says, As yourself. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone, without exception, has this human trait. This is what moves us to do this or to do that. So we hear and respond to Jesus' commandment. As you love yourself, so love your neighbor. Which means, as you long for food when you are hungry so long to feed your neighbor when he's hungry. As you long for nice clothes for yourself, so long for nice clothes for your neighbor. As you work for a comfortable place to live, so desire a comfortable place to live for your neighbor. As you seek to be safe and secure from calamity and violence, so seek comfort and security for your neighbor. As you seek friends for yourself, so desire that some... So again, so be a friend to your neighbor. As you want your life to count and be significant, so desire that same significance for your neighbor. As you work to make good grades for yourself, so work to help your neighbor make good grades. As you like to be welcomed in strange company, so welcome your neighbor into strange company. As you would that men do to you, so do to them. In other words, make yourself seeking the measure of yourself Giving. I'll say that again. In other words, make yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, the word as, the word as is very radical. It's a radical word in this context. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a big word. As it's a big word in this context, in saying all this and realizing how radical this commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. We must realize that this exactly this is why the first commandment is the first commandment, it's the first commandment that makes the second commandment even doable. We can't even do the second commandment, loving our neighbors uh, as we love ourselves, unless we first love God. The first commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The first commandment is the basis of the second commandment. The second commandment is a visible expression of the first commandment. Which means this, before you make your own self-seeking the measure of your self-giving, make God, make God the focus of your self-seeking. This is the point of the first commandment. And with that great discovery that God is the never-ending fountain of our joy, the way we love others will be forever changed. Once we again realize that God is the never-ending fountain of our joy, of our peace, of everything, that way we will, that, that, in that way we will, uh, loving others will forever be changed. So now finishing up. The dual command to love God and to love people is actually summed up in verse 40 in which Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So everything else in the Old Testament that God required of believers in some sense depends, it hung on these two commandments. The commandment to love God and the commandment to love our neighbor. And this is an amazing statement if we really think about it, if we ponder, if we meditate on the statement. We have the authority of the Son of God here telling us something utterly mind-blowing about the origin and design of the entire plan of the Word of God. Meaning, they are also the two commandments on which everything else in the Bible depends. That's a radical, mind-blowing truth about these two commandments. Loving others is the outward manifestation, the visible expression, the practical demonstration, and therefore the fulfillment of what the Old Testament is all about. And then throughout the rest of Scripture in the New Testament. So there is a sense in which the second commandment, to love your neighbor is the visible goal of the whole Word of God. It's not as though loving God is not here or that loving God is less important. Rather, loving God is made visible and manifest and full in our visibly, practically, sacrificially loving of others. Simply said love for God comes to visible manifestation when we love others. Or you could say, our love for God is fulfilled when we love others. I think that is why the second commandment actually stands by itself when the New Testament says in Romans 13, 8, that love fulfills the law. So God's word for this morning is that we take with tremendous seriousness this season how we love God and how we love others. That our first and primary focus would be to passionately pursue being happy in God and God alone, as Dom taught last Sunday. If you didn't hear that message, I would encourage you to listen to it because our first and primary focus would be to be passionately to passionately pursue being happy in God and God alone and then to love people everywhere we find them the way we love ourselves show them give them through every practical means available what you have found for yourself in God give to others what you yourself have found In God. That we as God's people. In light of the resurrection. In light that we have been redeemed. In light that we have been brought out of darkness. And we've been brought into his glorious light. In light that we are saved. That our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In light that the same power that rose Christ from the dead. Lives in us in light of the resurrection, that we as God's people would walk in love in 2018, as it says in Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For Jesus Love meant nails through His hands and feet and a spear through His side. Love meant climbing onto a cross and offering Himself up as a sacrifice to you and I. Love meant inconvenience and sorrow and excruciating pain. This is the love that breathed life. ...into our dead lungs. The love that is broader, longer, higher, and deeper than the galaxies. The love that is washing every stain of sin from our souls. The love that commands us to imitate. Even if our strongest love as human beings is but a whisper compared to his symphony of love. Therefore, walk in love. Go low to lift others up. Spend your time with the lonely. Bend your body to bear burdens. Ransack your imagination to meet needs. Give your presence to the grieving. Fix your attention on the forgotten. I want to pause and highlight something that I believe is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Give your presence to the... The grieving. In light of everything our city and our county has experienced this past month. In light of those that are grieving due to the, their losses because of the fire. And most recently, the mudslides in Montecito. As of yesterday, 19 people Deceased. Five still missing. One story, they all break my heart, but one in particular. A family. The mother and the daughter are in ICU at Cottage. One of the daughters, 12 years old, her sister Sawyer was found dead in the mud they just found their older daughter Morgan 25 as of yesterday so I'm just thinking about the mother right now I'm thinking about the father I'm thinking about myself if I lost a 12 year old daughter and I lost my 25 year old daughter and my wife and my other 12 year old 12 12- twin daughters and I see you right now I would be completely undone we would be completely undone we would be completely broken and if we weren't believers which I don't know about this family we would be completely hopeless so I believe the word of God this this morning is give your presence to the grieving there are People grieving in our county, in our community. There's some in our midst that have lost, they have lost their homes, they're grieving. And then there's people more importantly and more tragically have lost loved ones. And so if God brings to your attention, whether you know the person or whether you hear about a need and an opportunity to give your presence to the grieving, then the word of God this morning would be that we move towards that. That we move towards that with compassion. That we give ourselves, we give our presence to the grieving. Even if you just hear about it on the internet and you don't actually know those people, we can give ourselves to them in prayer. We can give them ourselves to them if we realize wow there's a need I can meet I don't know them but I can meet that need so if there's anything that's a takeaway that I believe is the word of God this morning is that because of the resurrection because we have been redeemed because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life because of his grace and his grace alone and because we will be resurrected on that last day and we have the resurrection power of God living in us we can give ourselves to the presence of the grieving so such love will cost us it will cost us of a course because we're going to have to relinquish handfuls of time and comfort and convenience if we are going to give ourselves to the grieving, if we are going to give ourselves to the lonely, if we are going to bear the burdens of others, it's going to cost us our time, our comfort, and it's going to be an inconvenience. But in the end, but in the end, Jesus knows how to repay everything you lose on the path of love. As it says in Ephesians 6.8, Whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord. That's the promise this morning. So go low in love. Go low in love in 2018. And Christ Himself will lift you up. Walk in love this year. Would you join me in prayer? Father God in heaven, That is the cry of my heart and I believe that is your word for me and for your people, for your sons and daughters, that we would walk in love today and throughout 2018 and throughout our lives. Because of the resurrection, you have called us to first and foremost love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength and with all our mind. And then you call us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We surrender to you right now, and we just acknowledge, God, my love is but a whisper, but if your love is a symphony, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Help me to respond to those that are in need. And so, God, we just ask for your grace. We ask for your help. We ask that you would just awaken us to your love this morning and awaken us to the needs around us. In Jesus' name, amen.